if you don't know how to manage worry when it shows up, then you're not going to be able to do the plan. So the plan shouldn't be focused on all of those logistical steps. The plan should be focused on when you're doing the things you need to do to get to school, to get to the birthday party, to sleep in your own bed, whatever, get on the airplane. The main part of the plan for me is how do you respond when your worry shows up? That's the part of the plan. Welcome to season six of Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and all the big feelings too. We tackle the serious stuff without being too serious. And I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. And I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. I'll give you concrete steps to take and the words to say. Hey, Lynn. Hi, Robin. So what are we talking about today? What we're talking about today is how do you come up with a really effective plan for dealing with your kid's anxiety? Because everybody talks about plans. We need a plan. We need a plan. We need a plan. And there really are some do's and don'ts with plans that will determine whether or not they'll work and whether or not they'll totally crash and burn. Okay. Could I ask some dumb questions that I'm sure other listeners might have too? Yes. I've heard of individualized education plans, of course. And is that what we're talking about today? Or are you talking about a plan with a therapist, for example, as well? Well, I'm going to talk about plans with a therapist and plans with families and plans at schools. An IEP, an Individualized Education Plan, can be very helpful when it includes some of the things that I'm talking about, but oftentimes they don't because sometimes it's not the purview of the school, but sometimes we can put things in place. But what I'm really talking about is, as always, how are we developing the skills that kids need to manage their anxiety and worry when it shows up? And oftentimes plans are just really based on we're going to do this and this and this. And it misses, the plan misses the huge, important component of how are we going to teach the skills or even talk about or even identify or even put into words the skills that somebody needs to manage their worry when it shows up. It sounds like you're talking about plans even within the context of what a family does on their own. Absolutely. I would go so far as to say this is actually relevant to all families, not just those who have already prearranged or are considering IEPs. This is really a family's approach to anxiety management or prevention. Yes. Okay. So let me just sort of walk you through it. Say there's something that you want your child to do and you know they're not doing it because of their anxiety. So they're avoiding something. Oftentimes, the plan will be, let's put very concrete things in place to hopefully facilitate them doing the thing that they need to do. For example, our child is having difficulty getting to school. So I will say, all right, do you have a plan in the morning to get your school refusal kid into school? And they'll say, yes. And we make a plan on Sunday night and we have everything ready to go. And then it totally falls apart in the morning. So I say, well, what's the plan? And then they will 
tell me very solid and necessary logistical things that one does in order to get to school, but it leaves out the key component of what do you do when worry shows up. So for example, they'll say, well, we're going to lay out the clothes in the morning. We're going to make sure that she has a breakfast that she really likes. We're going to get up on time. We're going to not turn on the TV or not use any screens in the morning. And we're going to make sure that we get out of the house in plenty of time so that she can get to school without feeling rushed and without being late. I'm just wondering if the regular listeners are like, uh-huh, uh, I'm <laughs> to you, Lid Lions. I know where this is going. So that's a good logistical plan. But then they'll say, well, we tried it and it didn't work. We tried our plan and it didn't work because having clothes laid out, having the good breakfast available, the goal of leaving the house with plenty of time to get to school is all well and good. But if you don't know how to manage the worry when it shows up and starts to do its usual dance, then all of those plans, all of those steps fall apart. It's also that parents are trying to arrange and manage the outcome. We talk about outcome management as a way that many parents are okay with, but because they'd be like, oh, we're not worriers. We don't have anxiety, but I'm really committed to outcome management. The intention of that plan is to try and control an outcome and prevent certain feelings and emotions from happening, which is what you also call the elimination culture. Right. And also a part of that is that they're not even considering the huge part of this. So here's an analogy. Say the goal is for you to speak Russian. I say, okay, so this is what's going to happen. You're going to have an interview. Even if I said to you, Robin, next week we're going to do the podcast in Russian. And you were like, okay. I go, look, you're going to be able to do it. Here's the plan. When you get up in the morning, make sure that you don't have too much caffeine Wear that really great green shirt that you have. Make sure that you get here 20 minutes early so we can make sure all our technology is working. And then we can do the podcast in Russian. Well, here's the thing. You don't know how to speak Russian. And that plan did not help me. That plan did not help you. Another analogy would be the goal is for you to star in a musical. And you're like, all right, I really want this to be successful. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that I book my hotel room well in advance for opening night so that I have somewhere to stay because I don't live in New York. I'm going to make sure that I have really comfortable shoes so that when I'm on stage, I'm not worried about my feet. I'm going to book hair and makeup so I look fabulous. I'm going to make sure that I have seven bottles of water off stage so that I can make sure I stay hydrated so that opening night goes well. Now, you will arrive, you will have your comfortable shoes, you will have your hotel room, you will have your water, and you don't know the words to the play. Much less know how to sing. Correct. So if we keep putting plans in place that are really based on, let's take these logistical steps that will lead to this ultimate thing. I mean, I could come up with a gazillion analogies. If you're afraid to fly, right, you can do all the things you need to do to make sure that your travel goes smoothly. 
But the issue isn't whether or not you have the ticket, whether or not you're in first class, whether or not you got there on time, whether or not you packed your snacks, whether or not blah, 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 blah. The issue is what does your anxiety do when it's time to get on the plane? And so I see a lot of plans that are full of those logistical steps, and they even might have rewards put in. So I could say to you, Robin, let's do next week's podcast in Russian. And if you can do that, I will give you $100,000. Okay, you're going to be super motivated to do that, but you still don't know how to speak Russian. So no matter what reward we put in place, if you don't know how to manage worry when it shows up, then you're not going to be able to do the plan. So the plan shouldn't be focused on all of those logistical steps. The plan should be focused on when you're doing the things you need to do to get to school, to get to the birthday party, to sleep in your own bed, whatever, get on the airplane. The main part of the plan for me is how do you respond when your worry shows up? That's the part of the plan. Let's take a break and we'll come right back. If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook, you can add events directly using the touch screen or with the free Skylight mobile app. Updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color coded so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up. So order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my 
water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free apple that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Okay, we're back. Okay, so I think listeners probably still don't know how to apply what you're saying to their world and their situation. Because if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, what I love as a listener of you and how I have interpreted what you say into my own world is that I see everything is Mm skill-based. And it's so helpful and such a game changer when you think of all of these things as skills that are part of you rather than a personality, you know, or something that can't be changed. The flying analogy, that's a great one because that also is very relevant to adults. There are a lot of adults who have flying anxiety and they will think that there is a content-based, meaning something about their plane ride that they can do that's related to a fear of flying. Right. Or all the preparation that they do. Exactly. Is concrete preparation to be ready to get on the plane. Right. One of my best friends, she has a fear of flying. And we have flown together before. And and we haven't flown together since the podcast, actually, because I think I did so badly the last time as a friend. 
So now it's like, if the difference between she and I sitting on a plane together is that we start to take off and she starts telling herself all of these scary stories about the plane and what could happen. Well before she takes off, by the way. Right. And so the skill of recognizing worry has shown up, what am I going to do? That's the thing. It's not really getting better at flying. It's getting better at recognizing that worry has shown up. Correct. If we take the flying example, this person, this friend of yours, is going to do all these things that are designed to mitigate the uncertainty about flying. I'm going to know where I'm sitting. I'm going to know what snack I'm going to have. I'm going to know who I'm flying with. I'm not sitting next to Robin next time because she totally freaked me, you know, whatever. Okay. I love her very much. She also took flight simulation lessons so she would understand how to fly the plane. Correct. Which is exactly. So then I'm going to take flight simulation lessons and word to her, we don't want you flying in the plane, honey. We don't want you flying the plane. We want the pilot to fly the plane. So that's what I say when people say like, well, it's just a matter of control. I'm like, well, you don't know how to fly a plane. We don't want you in control. We don't want you anxious flyer going up and knocking on the cockpit door. Let me take over. It'll help my anxiety. All right. So all of the things that we do that are these surface things, right? They're these logistical things, these concrete steps we're going to take to make things go smoother. But if you don't know how to manage your worry when it shows up, all of those logistical things are not going to help with the problem. And again, I can give you tons of analogies. There may be a dentist that is really good at washing her hands and having nice music in the office when you go in and has a very comfortable chair that you recline in and has a wonderful dental assistant. And if she doesn't know how to do the root canal, you're kind of screwed. The main skill is when the worry shows up, how do you respond to it? I have a slide that I show when I'm giving talks, and it says, my big goal, changing the relationship to worry and anxiety. So if you have a child who, for example, is having difficulty going to school, okay, so we want to make sure we get up on time and we laying out the clothes can be helpful and staying off screens is a good idea and let's make sure that we have a good breakfast or whatever. That's all window dressing for the main skill is that when worry shows up, we're going to give it a name. We're going to call it Frank. We're going to call it Sally. We're going to call it Joanne. And how are we going to respond to worry when it arrives? How are we going to have that conversation? How are we going to create that distance? The three X's, we're going to expect worry to show up. We're going to externalize it so we become an observer of the patterns. And then we're going to experiment by continuing to move forward. If talking to kids or practicing or role-playing what to do when the worry inevitably shows up, if that's not a part of the plan, it's not a plan. Let's take school refusal. So let's say you've got like a fourth grader who doesn't want to go to school. Yeah. Is this the right path or is this sort of falling into the same trap? I'm going to think about the worry is showing up because the skill that the child needs to practice, it's either maybe separation-based or judgment-based. Generally, uncertainty-based. Right. So the meta level above that would be uncertainty. So would you be going down the wrong path if you're like, you're just afraid of separation, but there are all these other ways that we practice separation. Do you think that even naming it as a separation skill is useful or a fear of rejection or judgment? Do you want us to go down those paths or is that also too specific? 
No, I mean, I think there's a place for that because I often talk with separation anxiety. I talk about the moment of goodbye. So when kids have separation issues, there's this big emotional moment when they're separating, we'll say from a parent, this big emotional moment. And so we want to help define that moment. And again, that's saying when worry shows up during the moment of goodbye. So now we've put a little context, like we need the content in order to practice the skill. So if it's a separation thing, we're going to say, when you say goodbye to mom, when we drive up to the school, worry's going to show up. Worry's probably going to be there in the car on the way there. So worry's is named Gladys. And I've had kids say, oh, what do you think Gladys is going to say? And they'll say, oh, when we make that last turn into the school parking lot, that's when Gladys really starts to chirp up. And so we say, okay, so Gladys is going to show up. Gladys is going to say, you can't handle it. You can't be away from mommy. This is terrible. This is a disaster. And then we know we're going to have those big feelings because Gladys is going to be right there. And so what are we going to say to Gladys? Gladys, we knew you were going to show up. This is what you say. This is how you operate. And we know you might even cry a little bit. You might even feel sad when you're saying goodbye to mommy or daddy. That's the moment of goodbye. And then we're going to keep moving because there's the logistical plan. You're going to drive up. You're going to say goodbye and your child is going to hopefully get into school. So we don't want to make the plan free of worry showing up and throwing its grenades and big emotions, right? That's a part of the plan. So we can talk about the content. Say, for example, a child is having a real difficult time doing a presentation in class. And so if we go just the logistics, right, we're going to prepare, we're going to make sure that you know what you're going to say. Maybe we're going to put an accommodation in place that you only have to give your talk to three people at first, which is actually not a bad place to start if we're going to build on that, parenthetically. And then we're going to do this and this and this. Fine. We want to prepare. We want to practice it. And then we also want to make sure that part of the plan is when you're standing up or before you stand up, what's worry saying to you? What's the story it's telling, just like your friend on the airplane? And how are we going to respond to that story? And how are we going to expect that story? And how are we going to make that story less powerful? If you don't address the story that the worry is telling as a core part of the plan, you're not going to get anywhere got to address what worry says when it shows up and how we change our relationship to it. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is also referencing the seven steps, like the anxiety disruptors and the puzzle pieces. Just acknowledging you're uncomfortable right now. Worry showing up because you're uncomfortable without getting more specific. Yep. And even part of the plan, because that step, that puzzle piece that you're referring to is the getting unsure and uncomfortable on purpose puzzle piece, which is really the meat of the sandwich. And really saying, we expect that you're going to feel uncomfortable and uncertain. Here it is. Here's the discomfort. Here's the worry. That has to be talked about. It has to be a part of the plan. Because what happens when you put these plans in place that are just based on logistical steps of we're going to go from here to here to here to here, then when the worry shows up, nobody knows how to deal with it. And they're like, well, we said we're going to lay out the clothes and leave on time. And then the plan just fell apart because... There was no discussion or practicing. What do we do when worry inevitably shows up? What I like about your doing the podcast in Russian or Greek or whatever language is that in reality, if you were to offer me $100,000 to do the podcast in Russian, maybe I would be motivated to learn Russian so that I could do it. But I would acknowledge it would take a lot of practice and time. 
Correct. This is not some overnight fix. This is about skill building that you incorporate into the rest of your life. Right. So if we just want to continue with that analogy, if I said to you, we're going to do the podcast in Russian in six months, and I will give you $100,000 if you can do it, you would be like, all right, I got to learn some Russian. I got to figure out how to speak Russian. And that is kind of how therapy goes. The goal is for you to get to school and maybe there's some reward and we're going to teach you the skills of getting into school when your worry shows up, not just getting into school. But if I said to you, Robin, we're going to do the podcast in Russian in six months, I'll give you $100,000, but you cannot learn anything about the Russian language. You just have to spontaneously know how to speak Russian. If I said to you, there's no practicing speaking Russian, there's no stepping in, we're not going to start at the beginning and build your Russian speaking skills. That's oftentimes what the plans are like that I run across. Even if I said, I'll give you $5 million, you could want to do that as much as you we could imagine and you wouldn't be able to do it, which is why when people say, well, she's just not motivated to deal with this, I'm like, well, have you taught her the skills? Because motivation without skills is nothing. I could be motivated to fly and I could flap my arms a lot. I'm not going to be able to fly. It's about the skill rather than just talking about logistics and rather than just hoping that it's going to go well. Let's also bring up Michael Yapko. And if you haven't listened to that episode from December 8th, I think it was, of 2023. I beg everybody listening to this, please, I'll give you a million dollars if you listen to that episode. (laughs) So one of the things that he said, not really in that episode, but it was sort of like that game changer for me where I started understanding this whole concept of skill-based emotional management was people don't really self-sabotage. There's simply an absence of skills that result in things not happening the way you want. Right. Yes. I'm so glad you brought up that term because a lot of times when there's a plan in place that it's just logistical, like I've described, but we haven't built the right skills for the job, then we do start using these terms of self-sabotage. That's such a pejorative term in terms of, and therapists use it all the time. And I honestly just think that's a- It's a BS. It's a BS. They're missing the point. Right. They're missing the point. We don't have the skills when somebody hasn't taught us and supported us and coached us and had us practice the skill of managing big emotions, the skill of understanding what worry does and says and how we're going to respond to it. No amount of motivation, no amount of rewards- No amount of conjoling or yelling or threatening or all the other things that we do are going to make it happen because you've got to have the skills. And people will say, well, what are the skills? Go back to the Anxiety Disruptor series that we started in June of 2022. Those are the skills I'm talking about. I talk about skills all the time. So Lynn, it seems like the expression is the best laid plans. Yes. And it sounds like it's so easy to get off track from the very beginning. I mean, and I think that's what you're addressing. And, you know, this is kind of reminding me of a listener question that we received that's a little tangential and yet very relevant to everything you're saying. So I want to read this and I think you can maybe help the parents set their plan up a little better for success from the beginning. Okay. I hope you have advice about how to help my son, who's 10, be able to talk to his telehealth therapist without me or 
his father sitting beside him. His therapist thinks it's very important that he speak to her alone since we're on week 10 and he hasn't really opened up to her. He looks to me for every answer, for instance, and flat out told her no when she requested he be without us in the room for at least the first half hour next week. We are his security blanket and he is already having anxiety about us being in another room. This has been par for the course his entire life, and I know he does so well at school when we're not present. How can we help him with this transition that isn't a big deal to most, but is terrifying to him? Okay, so this would be a good example of coming up with a plan where I don't know if there are any skills or I don't even know what the purpose of the plan is. Okay, you can imagine here's what I'm going to say. Well, maybe you can't imagine. I'm going to say it anyway. I would say if I were supervising this therapist, I would say in 10 weeks, and I get this a lot from people, they'll say, but you know, we know it's just the beginning, it's only eight weeks, or we know we've already been seeing them for so many weeks. That's not really the issue to me. The issue to me is if this kid has some separation anxiety from his parents, if the goal is you have to sit with the teletherapist without your parents in the room, okay. I'm going to be focusing on a bigger goal. How do we help these parents and this child deal with the fact that forever and ever, the parents have been, as they referred to, the security blanket? So I don't actually even care if the kid is in the room. I don't care who is sitting there, whether it's the child alone or the child with the parents, if there haven't been any broader skills that are addressing the problem in life. So what you're saying is you'd rather just have the parents alone with the therapist? Is that what you're saying? Well, sure. I mean, that's a good option. What I would say to this therapist is, what are the skills and the homework assignments and the things that you've been teaching this family so that this boy can be away from his parents? Now, he can be. He goes to school and he's fine when they're not there. But maybe in the house, he follows them around the house. Maybe he doesn't let them go into another room. We've done several episodes on this. What is the plan to deal with the family's problem? Because if the therapist just says, the goal is for him to be able to sit with me with the parents not in the room, okay, what the goal is, is how do we teach the broader skills so that this child is able to separate from the parents? So just announcing to a kid, we're going to meet without your parents, and the kid says no. Well, then right away, as a therapist, you've got several assignments that you'd want to give the parents. For example, at the very beginning, I would want the parents to keep track of how much they accommodate his behavior. I would wonder, have they externalized the worry? Have they talked about, again, the relationship to his worry, what it says when it shows up? And then during the week between appointments, there would be all sorts of daily, multiple episodes of daily practice of the child going to a different room. They can make it a game. They can make it playful. So in other words, there's a goal here and the plan has to be to teach the skills so this child can separate from his parents. There's nothing in this question that indicates skills have been practiced or taught, but that's a key thing that we need to look at. Doesn't this go both ways, though, because you always say you really don't even want to see a child without the parents. And if the parents and the child have created this pattern, this dynamic of attachment, both the parents and the child 
need new skills. Right. That's what I said. The very first thing I would do would be to have the parents pay attention for a week of how often they accommodate this behavior. And they might not even realize their role in this. I mean, most parents don't, right? Yep. So this is a fine goal to say, okay, so part of our practice is that during our telehealth session, the parents have to be in the other room, right? That's a fine assignment to give. But what are the skills that they've been working on for 10 weeks? It's sort of that same thing when I was saying at the beginning is the goal is for my child to be able to go to school because they're school refusing. And you're doing all these things like laying out the clothes and getting breakfast ready. What are the skills of managing the worry when it shows up? That would be my question to this question. The other thing, too, that is interesting about this that I hear all the time is that the parents said it's been 10 weeks and the child hasn't opened up to the therapist. I hear that all the time. What does that mean? Why does a child have to open up to the therapist? Right? I don't care. I don't care if a kid opens up to me. About what? He's a 10-year-old boy. I want to teach the family skills so that in their family, they can break out of this pattern. I don't care if a kid opens up to me. I've had kids who they're very quiet and I talk to them about how this thing works and then I give the family an assignment to do. What if the child refuses to participate? That I'm going to work with the parents to make sure that they're developing the skills, but there doesn't truly like there doesn't need to be opening up. Do you find that it's just as easy to do that with a non-participating child present? Yeah, they just sit there. Do they soak some of it up, you think? Yeah, I'll tell you. When you're talking about a kid, they're hanging on every word. Now, and sometimes what's funny is I'll be saying things to the parents like, I want you to do this, and then we're going to do this, and I can see the kid's face getting angrier and angrier, right, because I'm going to interrupt this pattern. Sometimes they go over and whisper into the parent's ear, you better not listen to this crazy person, whatever they say. And that's totally fine. And I'm also very open about it. I say, look, didn't you have one who was like, I hate her? (laughs) She left and she was walking down the stairs with her mom. I thought it went pretty well. Yeah. And she turned to her mom and said, I hate this lady, but that's okay. And I'm very upfront about that because I will say, look, your worry doesn't want me to interrupt this plan at all. And so here I am telling your parents how not to accommodate your worry. Here I am telling you, I don't want worry to boss you around. Well, worry is a cult leader. And worry says, hey, 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 Lynn Lyons here is trying to get you guys away from me. I'm not going to stand idly by and let that happen. All of that is very upfront. If this therapist is saying to this family, look, here's what we're going to do. This is a way we're going to practice during our session. We're going to have mom and dad be in another room. And I'm going to talk to you and let's see what happens. Let's, and then we can talk to worry when it shows up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't get the gist from this question. The therapist saying, I want this child to sit with me and open up to me for a half an hour. Are the skills being practiced for 10 weeks? What are the skills that have been practiced? Is there some sort of rewards? Have they gone through the puzzle pieces? Does this child know how worry works? Do they know the anxiety cycle? There's so much we can do rather than just announcing this is the behavior we're going to do. Again, if you had your kid in piano lessons and nobody was teaching them how to play the piano, then you wouldn't say the goal is after 10 weeks, this child hasn't practiced at all. They haven't touched the piano. I haven't taught them anything about playing the piano, but after 10 weeks, I expect them to be able to play a sonata. 
you'd be like, well, how's that going to happen? So there has to be practice. There has to be a plan that is based on the relationship that you have with worry. Not just the outcome we want, but how do we change the relationship? That's the key. It seems like when she talks about this longing for the kid to open up to the therapist, she's probably also falling into a bit of a content trap, thinking the why and what you're worrying about and and the history of the worry and, and all of that and simplify it. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. When people say we have to get to the bottom of this or we have to get to the source of this, she says this has been the case all his life. So there could have been something that happened. Odds are that this is a kid who's just sort of got this separation anxiety. They've had it for a long time. As I say, different kids come out wired in different ways, right? Some kids come out like chihuahuas. Some kids come out like golden retrievers. Could there be something? Sure. Is it an essential part of helping this 10-year-old to be able to separate from his parents? Nope. And here's the good news is when once he gets away from them, he goes to school, he does great. So this becomes... How do we practice separating and tolerating the big feelings that show up during that moment of separation or those moments of separation? You're exactly right. Simplify, simplify, simplify. And if the therapist or the parents think that this child opening up to the therapist is a key to being successful, I'm going to say, nope, it's not which is very different than what a lot of people think. And a lot of therapists who aren't very good at managing anxiety think too. Well, it's a different perspective. So there are a lot of therapists that think that it's really important to get to the root of the problem, to uncover it, right? I just was listening to somebody talking about worry is not in your brain or anxiety isn't in your brain, it's in your heart. And so it's really important to just go into the heart. I'm like, well... There are a whole lot of cognitive thinking patterns that actually create the symptoms. So we certainly have physical symptoms, and it certainly runs deep for some people. But to say it doesn't have anything to do with the way you think, I would disagree with that, too. You're being very diplomatic about that. I have a feeling you have stronger opinions (laughs) about that. So let's, for the record, Lynn was very nice to think that that's full of crap, okay? That's my translation. Okay, so when we come back, let's do a wrap-up of this. Okay. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. 
and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Okay, so now back to the show. Okay, you ready? I'm going to sum it up. These are all the things that I want people to pay attention to when they say to me, we need a plan. If the school says we need a plan, if the therapist says we're coming up with a plan, this is what I want you to think about. If it's only a logistical plan and there is no understanding of how anxiety works, you're not going to get anywhere. So that cycle that I talk about, which is in the kids video on my website and that is in Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, and that's in the Anxiety Disruptor series, understanding how it works is critical. The goal is to focus on how we're moving forward based on practicing skills. So it's not just an announcement of outcome and what we want. It's what are the skills that we're going to practice, the skills of stepping in and the skills of changing your relationship with the worry. If there is no practice or role-playing the skills, it's not going to work. Here's the difference. We're not going to practice getting on the bus on time. We're going to practice managing worry when the bus pulls up. A very important difference Kids know how to get on a bus. They know how to literally walk up the stairs onto the bus. What they don't know how to do is manage those big, sometimes overwhelming thoughts and feelings and sensations. The plan needs to be full of skills and hope, but if a plan is just full of hope, it's not going to work. You may wish and hope and really want it to be okay. You may be the most loving, supportive, caring parent. You may give your kid a wonderful pep talk about being able to get up in the morning and get to school and we're going to do this. But again, I could give Robin the best pep talk in the world and she's not going to be able to do the podcast in Russian no matter how good my pep talk is. You want to be encouraging, but it has to be full of skills. Behavior charts where we give rewards if you do this thing don't work unless it's targeted towards skills. Rewards can work, little playful rewards and charts. Remember, they last about one to two weeks before people get bored with them, but it has to be targeted on the skill you want. If I were making a behavior chart for Robin to be able to do the podcast in Russian, I would reward her for practicing her Russian not for showing up and speaking Russian on the podcast. So rewards for skills, not for outcomes, particularly at the beginning. And if there are no clear goals, if you say the goal is to get to school, that's too broad. The goal is to be able to be in your room by yourself. Okay, I get it, but it has to be broken down into steps. The goal is to be able to go upstairs without mommy and daddy, to be able to give worry a name, and to have practiced your responses to worry when it shows up. That's what the plan has to look like. I'll give you another quick example. If you've got a child who's very somatic, so they're having a lot of physical symptoms and they're going into the nurse all the time, the plan might say the goal is for him not to visit the nurse during the day or to decrease his visits to the nurse during the day. 
if that's the only plan, that's an outcome-based plan, that's just like the goal is for Robin to speak Russian. If we give skills, so when you walk into the nurse's office to visit the nurse, one of the steps, one of the skills is I'm going to walk into the nurse's office and I'm going to say, Mrs. Jenkins, my worry is bugging me and it's making my tummy hurt. And then Mrs. Jenkins is going to say, oh boy, Sammy's showing up, isn't he? Okay, what are we going to say to Sammy and how are we going to get you back to school? Skills, skills, skills. A plan without skills to address worry is not going to work. I wonder if people will think that there's any significance of all of our references to Russian this podcast. I just chose Russian. I could have chosen anything. Analogies are helpful and people are less defensive when they can understand something out of their own particular content. They feel less defensive, so it works. It does. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And if you found this podcast helpful, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find this information. And if you'd like to dig deeper on any of these topics, we have specialized playlists on our Spotify profile and the link is in the show notes. Topics like teens, depression, and OCD. Bye, Lynn. Bye, Robin. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact invented. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it.